Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 7. We are going to continue our series in Mark this morning. We have been plotting our way through this incredible remembrance of Jesus' life. We said this, I think, a couple of weeks ago, that the Lord, by the Spirit of God, recorded the life of Christ four times in the Scriptures. And we see that as important that we should preach it. Uh, so many people say, well, you know, it's just repetitious. <laughs> oh, each book is unique. And, and if the Lord, our God in heaven, designed for us to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record the life of Christ four times, I think we should preach it. And we learn so much from him. And what a blessing to study his life and to learn. And again, everything is so applicable for today. When you deal with the word of God, particularly dealing with the heart it doesn't change whether it's 2,000 years ago or it's today. So let me pray and we will look into the word together. Father, we thank you for a chance to sing at the top of our lungs the truths that we so hold dearly. And Lord, we would not hold those dearly if it was not for you. We would not be here this morning. We would not desire these things. The world would have a full grip on our heart Sin would drag us wherever it wants to. But Lord, so many you have saved. And you collect them in a place and call it a local church, a body of Christ. And it's there we worship and learn and grow and give and serve and all the beautiful things that you call the body of Christ to do. And on top of that, you gave us a perfect manual to live our lives by. You did not leave us alone. You placed your spirit within us. And so with great gratitude, Lord, we honor you. And we preach your word because you're worthy of it. And it's your word that changes people's lives, not ours. So, Lord, I pray that your word would go forth today. Father, there are those at home watching now, those in the hospital that can't be here. Lord, you've allowed things into their life that are difficult. We love them and we miss them and we pray for them today. That you encourage them, Lord, as they go through the trials that you have set before them. Lord, if there's hard hearts here today, we pray that you would pierce them. If there's broken hearts, we pray that you would mend them. In Jesus' name, amen. The great sermon given by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. If you've not read that or listened to a recount of that, you should. Um, It is an amazing uh, sermon preached many, many years ago. In the middle of that, he's dealing with the corruption of the heart. And he says this, the corruption of the heart of man is boundless in its fury. While wicked men are alive, it is like fury pinned up by God's restraint. But if it were to be let loose, it would set a fire to destroy the course of nature. His heart is now full of sin. So if sin was not restrained, it would immediately turn the soul into a fiery oven and of a furnace of fire and a brimstone. You remember, if you've studied the sermon at all or that time period, people fell down on the ground at that point and repented while he preached that sermon. Begging people to look at their sinful hearts that are keeping them from God. For many years uh, before I started preaching, uh, Gene and I worked with a lot of troubled youth. Um, 
We worked in the juvenile court system. While we're planting churches, we kind of did a little bit of everything, um, trying to make it along in ministry. Uh, we even, as Jerry Boyle came to where we started the, our, our church in, in Northern California, we started with a Christian boarding school. And it was interesting, we dealt with past, we, me, we dealt with dads, moms, counselors, psychologists, judges. Um, we dealt with a lot as we were taking in these young people to the boarding ranch to uh, try to help them. It was a Christian boarding ranch helping to, to win souls to Christ and help redirect their lives. But what we heard over and over as we dealt with the people was, um, you know, this child, we get this child, he's done all kinds of horrible things in life. But then they would say, but he has goodness in him. We would hear that all the time from judges, from their own parents that they almost bankrupt from their uh, immoral behavior or whatever, and it was difficult because you knew as you took in these kids that we ourselves there's nothing good in. And with no restraint of the Spirit of God, man is absolutely capable of full destruction. And there's a deadly belief that humans believe that they are basically good. It's deadly. And it's a lie that's been propagated by the world since the fall of man. Adam, well, well, Lord, well, who did this? Well, Lord, the woman you gave me. <laughs> Typical men. The woman you gave me. Couldn't be me because, you know, I'm good. The, the woman goes, well, it, the serpent. Well, where's he? He's, in the, he's gone. And so there's this constant desire to base sinful behavior on the environment that you're in. That if I only wasn't in this situation, I wouldn't be as bad as I am. And so we blame shift all those things. And, and, and let me be clear, it's important to remove yourself from sinful uh, situations. But your heart goes with you. And you can remove yourself. There was monks, they're called stylists, that lived on top of poles for years because they wanted to get away from the sin of the world. And guess where their sin went with them? On the pole. And so we realize, and if you are unwilling to acknowledge our sin, it will follow us to the grave. The Bible's view is very different than the world. It says all have sinned. Psalms 51.5 says we went, away, we went astray from conception. Jeremiah, by the inspiration of God, says our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all else. Above everything else, they're desperately wicked. And even with the best moral training, all that nastiness will escape from sin's home and get out of you eventually. If Christ does not pay for it. James gives a really good illustration of sin. People ask you all the time, well, where did sins come from? How does it come? Well, well, first of all, James 1 verse 13 says you can't blame God because let, let, let no one say, no one, when I'm tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away. Listen to the terminology. He's carried away and enticed by his own lust. That's what's flowing from the heart. And then when lust is conceived, isn't this so visual, isn't it? When it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, guess what it brings? Death. Thank you. It brings death. And then James adds this little note. We always leave this off, verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. 
Sin's goal is to kill. <laughs> That's his goal. And it's coming right out of our hearts. That's why Satan introduced it to the couple in the garden. It'll kill, break, and destroy things. That's the goal. But the seed of it comes from our heart. You think about the people in Jesus' day here. They didn't have today's blame game of modern psychology. It's your parents' fault. It's their parents' fault. It's the societies. I mean, they, don't have, they didn't have that in that day. And yet their hearts were just as corrupt as ours. You don't go through time and find, oh, people were so much better then. But the Bible doesn't teach that. They had maybe a morally obtained some outward walking uh, in, in some moral ways, but sin was at their heart and their external obedience only made it more hypocritical. And you could have the moral law and the, Samar- uh, the ceremonial law, and then you added all these myriads of tra- uh, traditions that we talked about the, from the elders, and you come up with a false dichotomy that will lead you to death. Do this, don't do this, don't eat this, I mean, and so forth. And this is what Jesus was coming into. It produced a form of legalism and hypocrisy that takes an outward, morally right person Straight to hell. It's a great trap. And I've told people for all, you know, Satan's not going to lead you into some wicked homosexual sin or something or something that we bit the big list. He'll keep you right in your religious position and send you to hell that way. And you'll never turn to Jesus. So, as we get into Mark 7, Jesus is going to answer the question that the Pharisees asked in chapter excuse me, verse 5, why do your disciples eat with unclean hands? But he's not going to answer the religious rulers. That's what's so interesting about this text. He doesn't answer them. Turns to the people, gives them an answer, and then I want you to catch this as we go through this text. He gives the extensive answer to those who say they believe in him. That's remarkable about this text. I'm not going to answer these people. I've already given them over. They're blind guides, and they're going to fall in a pit together. I'm going to give the crowd uh, a partial answer, see who will come out of that and follow me, but I'm going to turn to those who say they love me, say they believe in me, and I'm going to give the in-depth answer to them. Guess which we should listen to? It's an interesting text. And so, as you come upon this, we begin to realize that Jesus is about ready to show a man his heart. Pharisees love the word defilement. <laughs> they use it all the time. Um, they never wanted to be associated with someone who was defiled or be around them or be defiled themselves because you would not enter the kingdom of God if you were defiled. So what does Jesus do? He takes the word defilement and uses it five times in this text. So when I, I study young guys, guys in seminary, you're working on studying the text, guys preaching and teaching in our classes. When you see God's word say something five times in a few verses, you probably should mark that down. And go, hmm, what are you talking about? So this whole text is really about defilement. This is, they say, you, they defile themselves by eating without washing their hands. Jesus says, you're so far wrong. I'm going to show you what defilement is about. Let me give you three thoughts today as we look through this text. First, victory over deadly defilement begins by listening to Jesus and his word. Let me read that again. Victory over deadly defilement begins by listening to Jesus and his word. The previous passage, 
we're reminded that Jesus' ministry is taking a, a major shift, right? He's, um, Mark is not so much recording as many miracles. He's starting to record his teaching. He's under a year away from the crucifixion. And, and now all of this teaching is starting to flow out of him, at least what's recorded here. The Galilean ministry is just about coming to an end. Religious leaders have been sent from Jerusalem to try to take on the Lord Jesus Christ. The crowds have been following Jesus. They, the, the leaders see their authority slipping away. They've crafted this great question. We're going to get Jesus on this. Why, why do disciples defile themselves? And think about it. If they can prove that Jesus and his disciples are defiled, they're going to win in that religious society. That's their goal. Oh, you're following this guy and this little band of men that he has, these fishermen and tax collectors? They're defiled. That's what they're, that's what they're trying to do. And so, the Lord Jesus takes this head on. You remember in the first section, uh, verses 1 through 13, he, they ask him these questions. He never answers the question. He turns in, in verse 6. You remember this, Isaiah 29, 13. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching doctrines and precepts of men. That was his answer. <laughs> oh, that's not what they were looking for. And, and, and he did it publicly. He publicly rebukes them. And so... If he was looking to win a popularity contest, that was not it. And they were now very upset. We have a term, we had a term on the ranch. We'd say, that cow's on her ear. Watch out for her. Do you know what that means? You, you know when an animal's mad, they'll put their ears down or something like that. They got their ears down, man. The Pharisees are going, he just quoted Isaiah and threw us under the bus. They're upset. And so we come to verse 14. Notice this. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. Well, here, here lies the answer to deadly legalism. Here lies the answer to the problem that they're having. Listen to the word. Right? John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. God is among them, and he says, here's the answer to the question. Listen to me, he says. I am the word. I'm both the living word and the written word. Don't listen to traditions. Don't listen to what makes you feel good. Not what you think God will accept. See, man conjures up constantly, well, I think God likes this. No, what does he say? What does God desire? Know your Bible. Put yourself under accurate teaching of the word of God. And he will lead you to this. Note that both these words here, listen and understand, they're both imperatives in the text. They're not suggestions. Here's your problem. Listen to me. What's he doing? You've been listening to them. <laughs> they're telling you these legalistic, man-centered traditions. Stop listening to them and listen to me. It's a call, it's a beckoning for them to turn from them. And it's a life-altering command. And this is really where salvation starts, right? Somebody told you of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, didn't they? Somewhere along the line, a grandmother, a vacation Bible school, a Sunday school teacher, a neighbor, a co-worker, somebody came along and told you what Jesus has done. And you heard the word. And so here's this group of people 
most of them are following Jesus because, you know, they, they love the new welfare program, right? No work, free food, good health care. He's healing everybody. He's feeding everybody. What else do we need? I mean, this is some government medical stuff on steroids. And so they're all following him for this. But he says, here's what you need. Here's all you need is you need to listen to me, not them. And that's really where salvation starts so often. Stop listening to what you believe, what you think, and listen to what God says. And he puts this forth. Just when, when we follow the uh, harmony of the Gospels and the timeline of Jesus, this text lands us roughly in the middle of John 6. John 6, Jesus is preaching, I'm the bread of the life. I'm the life of bread, bread of life, right? And if you consume me, right, eat, eat me and drink my blood. And he's going on and on, and they're going, uh-oh. Now who are we following? And then they all leave him, right? And John, John records that. He turns to the disciples and says, hey, are you leaving too? Everybody else is going. And Simon Peter, the spokesman of the group, says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. You have the words of eternal life. So isn't it interesting that he turns to this crowd and says, listen to me, and then you'll understand I think so many people don't understand the gospel. They don't understand the scriptures. They don't understand the Christian life because they don't listen to the word. They listen to Christian psychology and, and uh, man's views intermingled with some Christianese thoughts. And they remain so confused of what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 2, just, we don't have time to go there, but listen to this. See to it that no one takes you, no one takes you captive through philosophy. And listen to these words, empty deception, according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. The church of Colossae was struggling with the same things we struggle with today. There's a little bit of mixture of Jesus, a little bit of mixture of, of some theology and some truth with a very humanistic view. It's vain. It's empty. You know what it does? It holds you in need of the next one, right? It always says the first one's free. <laughs> and that's what happens. And that's the way so often Christian, quote, Christian ministries will teach. They don't give you the word of God. They don't give you the sustaining, eternal life of God's word. They just hold you there. And, and so he warns the Colossae church, no, let no one take you captive to this philosophy and empty deception. These elementary principles. Here's an elementary principle. We heard it all. I just told you when we started the sermon. Those kids are basically good. It, one lady told us, had the gall to say this, your job is to bring the good out of them. I said, well, the Bible says there's none good. No, not. I said, where do you want me to start? <laughs> it's just there's nothing there, right? Oh, the Thessalonica church Paul said, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord Jesus, having received the word in much tribulation with joy from the Holy Spirit. What a great church. They received the word, and they were during trials. They were during difficult times. They didn't quite understand how things were going to go in life, but they, re they received the word with much joy. They realized God was speaking to them, and they received it. And brothers and sisters, as we study the scriptures, God is speaking to us. Mark chapter 9, verse 7, we'll get to this shortly. Um, but Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, 
his veil is really kind of lifted for just a moment and they really see Christ in his glory and the heavens open up and God says, this is my beloved son. Anybody know the rest of the words? Listen to him. Listen to him. You want to break things in your life that seem to have a stranglehold on you? Listen to him. Examine yourself. We must examine our churches. We must examine what drives us. It's God's words, not Scott's word or your word. Victory is in Jesus and his word too. Second thought, victory over deadly defilement comes from truth, not myths. Look at verse 15. There is nothing outside of a man which can, here we start this list of defile words, right? Which can defile, there's the first one, until it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of a man are what defile the man. Now he's used it twice on him already. So Jesus tells this crowd the truth. They believed in these silly notions that you could be defiled by something you devoured. Remember I told you a couple weeks ago that during the intertestinal period, there were some pharisaical teachings that taught that demons sit on your hands while you sleep, and then you touch your mouth and demons get in you. <laughs> they believe that stuff, right? We laugh at it, but I mean, people believe all kinds of crazy wise tales, right? This is, this is myth, Right? It's not even close to the source of true spiritual defilement. Defilement that is an offense to God is an internal spiritual reality. And, and, and sin pollutes, doesn't it? There's a parallel text, and if you're interested, you can stick your finger in Matthew 15. That's going along. The, the Matthew and Mark both teach on this situation here. But in Matthew 15, 11, the word records it this way. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles this man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this, and it really highlights, this defiles. He wants to show this word that is on their heart and on their tongue. They've been talking defilement, defilement, defilement. He wants to prove this word and where it comes from. So the point simply was the moral contamination that the false leaders were always talking about doesn't come from the mouth um, of what you take in, it's what comes out of it. And, and King Solomon talked about this law, Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all diligence from out of it throws the issues of life, right? Proverbs 6.12, a worthless man and a wicked man is the one who walks with a perverse tongue so that stuff's coming up out of them. James chapter 3, you know this whole story, he says, for we all stumble in many ways, and he goes on to say, if you, if you don't, you're perfect, and you go, What's he talking about? Because none of us, I like that he says we all stumble. And he says, if you don't, you're perfect. And then what does he do? He launches into the tongue. <laughs> he starts to talk about a bit with a horse. And uh, I was thinking about this week when I read that. We always kind of prided ourselves a little bit that we, had, we would train soft mouth horses. So when you just pull on the rings, just touch on them, that horse reacts. You've probably ridden horses where you're pulling on them, they run you all over the place. Not a good horse. Um, but the point was that, that just that touch on there, and I thought, you know what? I think I have a soft mouth <laughs> because my tongue pulls easy. It says things quickly. It responds quickly to the heart at times. It's not good. He goes from there and talks about a rudder. You remember this big ship, little rudder? Turns it around. Works on a forest fire, our California friends. One spark destroys. I mean, we know that. Many of us um, here have friends that lost their homes. A spark started and took out a 90% of a town. Um... And so he ties that in, that this is coming from the heart. And notice in verse 15, and this is important here, this is not 
only just words that we're talking about. You go, well, wait a minute, I've cleaned up my language pretty good. Notice it says the word things in verse 15. But the things which proceed out of man are what defile them. So they are certainly capable not only of evil and wicked and lustful words, but now he's talking about their actions here. And Jesus now taught that true defilement is. This is what it is. It's coming out of you, not only just your word, but your actions. You say, well, wait a minute. Didn't the Old Testament talk about forbidden things? Don't eat this and don't go there and all that stuff. Well, certainly it did, but it already always had a priority command given to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. That was the first thing that you see. And the reason for the law was to help you love God because you couldn't keep it. And you needed him. Second, the law was given to show the perfect character of God. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, be perfect like your perfect father. Well, you know, well, I can't do that, but it tells us that our father is perfect. Romans chapter 3 tells us that it points out sin, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin, Romans 3, 20. And fourth, look, the law was to be a shadow of good things to come, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. The law was pointing to something greater, someone who could fulfill it, someone who could bring us in the presence of God, someone when we stand before God someday and he asks us, did we keep his law, the son steps in and says, I fulfilled it for them, they're in me. And so what a beautiful thing that is. And Jesus, when he spoke, behold, I've come to do the things of your will, he takes away the first in order to establish the second. So, Going through all these motions and clinging to your, to your good works created this, this thriving hypocritical uh, hypocrisy system. And to make things worse, they just added to it. They kept adding traditions. And so when, when you deal with works, when you try to work yourself to God, and, and I want you to think about this in a practical way. If you um, are in a relationship with somebody who only loves you when you do the things that they want you to do, that relationship grows cold quickly. And that's what happens to God in relationship with man. And I, and I think this, this is probably one of the biggest problems. People come and I just, I, I just don't know him well. Well, what are you doing? Well, I do this, I do this, I do this, I do this. The more you do, the more less that you feel close to God. He's not interested in what you're doing. He's interested in your heart. He's interested in your worship, your, what flows out of you. Versus this list of external things. And so it's so interesting. Um, one man said this. If I obey God, then God will love and accept me. But the gospel says, I am loved and accepted, therefore I desire to obey. You've heard me say this a million times, both in Hollister and here. Not because we have to, but because we, we get to or want to. That's the desire here. So salvation is born from God through Christ. And we listen to him. He is the truth, the way, the life, right? And truth will set you free. Verse 16, just by the way, isn't probably in the best manuscripts where he says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. I think Jesus said that many times. But our, but our, original, our best original manuscripts don't have that in there. That's why it's in brackets. Let's go to our third and last point. Victory over death. Excuse me. Victory over deadly defilement is explained further to the disciples. Victory over deadly defilement is explained further to his disciples. Well, after the crowds depart, the religious leaders go away with their kind of tail between their legs, Jesus enters a house, 
And it's probably, remember, he was probably in this same house. I'd imagine it's Peter's family's house. This is where he healed Peter's mother-in-law, where he, he did so much ministry. He couldn't even eat at times, the Bible says. And now he's with his true followers, his disciples, those who are confessing him to be the Messiah and their follow him. And now he takes the conversation to a whole nother level. Look at verse 17. And when he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. So here they are, they're around him, they're wanting to know what's going on and, and why, they, why he did what he did. Again, the Matthew text takes us just a little, a little deeper. So here the, it, Mark says the disciples questioned him, but let me, let me just read you what Matthew says. Then the disciples came, they went into the house and said to him, do you not know the Pharisees were offended when they heard that statement? Uh, Jesus we're not winning here with that kind of stuff. I mean, we're never going to get the White House on this thing. You keep tweeting out stuff like this. Verse 13, but he answered them. and He never answers. He just, he just says the greatest things. Look what he does. Verse 13, but he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind, blind guides to the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Whoa. Don't be too judgmental here. Remember, he knows the heart of all men. He knows whose are his and knows who are not. He will separate sheep and goats so easily. He will just go, whoop, whoop. He knows the heart of men. And then Peter says, in, in the Matthew text, Peter says to him, explain the parable to us. It's actually in a very intense form. He's like, uh, I don't want to be a blind guide. I don't want to fall into the pit. And he asks for an explanation. See the difference of how he's dealing with those, maybe as weak as they were at that time. And you say, well, Scott, I'm not a theologian. I'm still learning the faith. I'm still under that. This is how Jesus deals with you. He brings you along. And so Peter says, explain this to me. And so it's not surprising the Pharisees were offended. Their, their legalism it made them so prideful. And Jesus just shoots right at the heart. He tells them, look, you're a blind guide. But Mark chapter excuse me, Mark here picks up in verse 17. He's, he goes on to say, Do you not, where Jesus says, Do you not understand, excuse me, verse 18, do you not understand whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? And then he adds this little phrase. Are you lacking understanding also? Which is interesting. He, he, it's a mild rebuke compared to what he did with the Pharisees. You're my followers. You've been with me for two years now. I've raised the dead. I've cast out demons. I've preached extensively of who I am. Do you lack understanding too? Now I like this point. One is because God's very patient with his children. You say, Scott, I haven't grown like I should. I've been too busy with business or whatever. I think the Lord challenges those who walk with, are you lacking understanding? I, I have something for you. I can help you with this. And so he now begins to take on the ones that he loves dearly, these ones that are committed to him and following him. And he says, do you not understand whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him. Cannot defile him. And I think what's interesting here is 
He, he knew what man was in man. And he's got a, a less than a year till the cross. He's trying to get these disciples ready. They're going to they're gonna preach and see the birth of the, the church. Um, he's getting them ready to realize it is not this outward behavior that you've been so trained in for years upon years upon years that you've got to break away from. He's, he's gently pulling them away from that. And then, and, and then he, here, Jesus, the creator, he gives a biology lesson, isn't it? Right? He, he goes, look, what do you think happens in verse 19? It does not go into the heart. You think food goes into your heart? You think some germ off of your hand goes into your heart? It goes into your stomach, and then it's eliminated. I don't have to go into too many details here, do we? It's simple biology here. Um, and he's given them a lesson about it. And he says, because it's in the heart. It's because it, it, it's, the heart is the issue here. And this is, when he talks about heart, we have to understand, and you, I think you know this, this is the mental and emotional and spiritual storehouse of the soul. This is who we are. This is what God saves. This, this old body does not go on. He gives us a new one. It's who I am, who Scott is, is the soul of him, the spirit of him, the one God knows and knew before the foundations of the world and drew him to himself. That's who is saved and that's who he's talking about. But that's where this problem's coming from as well. There's sin and things that come out of us. And so he's talking about one's attitudes, one's affections, one's priorities, one's desires, one's ambitions that form the way he or she thinks. And acts. So clearly the Lord is saying, look, physical food is not the problem here. There's a problem in your soul. And the condition of one's heart before the Lord is not determined by what you eat or who sat on your hands or whatever. It's interesting, there's a little parenthetical statement Mark makes at the end of this. And this is in all the good manuscripts. He declared all foods clean. So you bacon lovers... And remember, Mark was probably recording um, the sermons of Peter. This is what we believe. And he's, but the Spirit is guiding him along as he pins every word. Um, and, and we know that Peter had that great experience in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius. And then later, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4, 3, that all food is, is free. And so I, I love this statement. very happy for it. Probably going to have some pork afterwards. Um, you know, it just reminds me of the goodness of God. And, but the big point is... Think about how many good pigs didn't get eaten because they thought they were going to go to hell for it. And still today, still today, that, per, that persuasive argument remains in some peripheral Christianity, trying to drive people away from the truth. Verse 20, let's move on. And he said, and he was saying, that which proceeds out of man, that is what defiles man. So here Jesus is really starting to dial in. Here's where the true defilement's coming. Spiritual defilement can come only from within. He's working on those now who believe in him. He's working with those who are close to him. He's working with those who are forsaken all to say, look, your problem isn't what's going in. Your problem is what's coming out. And he's talking to believers. And that's why we have to pay attention. It's always easy to think about the Pharisees. Yeah, they're blind guides. Crowds, well, you know, most of them, don't, they just want to be fed. He's talking to us. Look at verse 21. He says, from within, out of the heart of men proceeds evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. 
Now he's going to get serious. And this is a little fillet job he does. And when you get around the Lord, when you get around the Lord Jesus and you get around the word of God, it often will fillet you and lay you open. And this is what Jesus is doing. It's the dynamics and the syntactical structure of the verse is interesting. He says, "For within, out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts." Evil thoughts is not part of the list. Evil thoughts is where everything is coming from. It's an interesting uh, Greek syntactical structure here. It, it, it really is talking about this is the problem here. This is where it's all coming from. All this list that comes behind this is being developed between the heart and the mind here. It's referring to a person's inward reasoning and perception. It's referring to that part of us, that soul of us. In, in the Greek would read this way, the thoughts of the evil ones. Right? So it's, it's talking about everything that starts to get developed there. And this stresses their, their nature as morally bad. He's stressing that our nature, left to ourselves is morally bad. There is none good, none righteous, no, not one. And they, they, they are thoughts that are united with this evil, um, proactive action that follow thoughts. And so what he does is very interesting. He gives 12 actions. Six are in the plural and six are in the singular. You go, was that important? Yeah. Listen along. It's a reminder that our heart is greatly affected by the mind. And so you have to be careful what you take in and and what you believe because what goes to the mind goes down to the heart and then you mix up this concoction, this dichotomy of a mind and heart that thinks humanly and not of the word. And then what happens, you get this list that bears an impressive witness to the diversity of the sin that lies within our own hearts. And and brothers and sisters, let me plead with you as we go through this list, do not think of someone else. Because it's very easy to look at this and go, oh, that guy or this girl or that or whatever. He's talking to his disciples. He wants us to examine our lives. Plurals represent Why he does plurals, they represent the multiple ways these actions, the first six are actions, multiple ways they can express themselves. He starts with fornication, or your Bible might say sexual immorality. This is the Greek word pornea. Pretty clear? That's what it is. It's a general reference to sexual sin. What lies within our hearts and minds is pornea. If we are not captured for Christ, that is what will and want to come out of us. The next one is interesting, theft. We get our English word kleptomatic from this word. See how fun the Greek is? It's just a blast to study. You go, oh, that makes a kleptomatic. All you think about is taking somebody else's stuff. And it isn't just theft of somebody's stuff. Theft of time. Stealing from a father who has a daughter that's under her. I mean, just think. It goes on and on about how wicked the heart and mind can be and how it will steal. And it can be, it's plurals because it's, it's not just one thing. It's, it, it links to many things. He goes on to murder. This literally means take another's life. Well, anybody who knows anything about biology and science, knows that life begins at conception. It's been proven over and over. Cells are multiplying. It's, you, you know, it's just amazing. Life's happening there. 
And so murder is taking another one's life, but Jesus, you know him, he always goes to the next level because he's going to our heart. You hate somebody? What's he call it? Mm. He goes right to our heart, doesn't he? Adulteries. Woo. Remember, it's plural here. Violates the marriage covenant before God. Violates the marriage covenant. Well, I, haven't, I have never, you know, never slept with anybody else in my life. So it's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. It's, remember, it's plurals. He's talking about mind and heart, not outward stuff, things that people can't always see. Giving what only belongs to your spouse to someone else is adultery, period. It belongs to her. It belongs to him. And it all happens in the mind. Remember, he is not talking about outward behavior. He is talking about inward. You can't forget that when you go through this list. Because you and I go, oh, I didn't do that one. I didn't do that one. And if we're honest, we'd probably lose it all of these. In one form or another. Deeds of coveting. References to the unseen desires and behaviors motivated by greed and materialism. If you play the lotto, please don't come and tell me that if you win, you're going to give a lot of money to the church. <laughs> I get told that all the time. Not by any of you great saints. Um, <laughs> I go, please don't tell me that. It, it literally means it's a reference to unseen desires, multiple desires, multiple behaviors that are motivated by greed and materialism. The next new thing out. I'm going to get this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to win this. I'm uh, guys, will, guy, I don't know if you girls do this, but guys will chase this stuff forever. They'll bankrupt their families. They'll, they'll take people through difficulties because they're chasing something because there's a greed, there's a, there's a covetousness in their heart of something that can't be seen and it destroys homes. These last four are all part of the Ten Commandments. In Matthew 15, he adds false witness, which would be another one of the Ten Commandments. Then he, he finishes up with the plurals with wickedness. And, he's, and wickedness is a, quite a word. It's iniquity that unites everything else that violates God's holy word and law. So if he missed anything, he goes, oh yeah, the wickedness in your heart. Man, I was doing pretty good. He moves to the singular sins here. And they represent, and here's why it's singular. Because it represents an attitude. The other ones were... Um, lifestyle and actions that will flow out of your heart and come out of there. But this is, this is an attitude. And so they, he moves to singular here. And they, they lie behind the evil actions, right? The first one, were, they're the same. That attitude comes in there, but they come out and you can see them. Here, this is what lies behind evil actions. He starts with the word deceit. It means craftiness, lying, deception. It, it means you have an attitude of, I'm going to figure out how to get ahead here. I'm going to take advantage. I'm going to think through how I can take advantage of, of someone. It's deceit. Sensuality comes back to another word that we would say, well, why isn't this like fornication? But again, remember, this is the attitude. It's a reference. Now think about this. It's a reference to unbridled lust of a sexual driven mind. Man, these are hard. <laughs> you think about this. And this, this stuff absolutely destroys homes, children, marriages, families. It goes on because it's unbridled. It can be hidden behind the most moral behavior, but it's there. And it hurts. And, and this often is what leads to church discipline and, and just so much difficult that goes on because unrepentance never comes. 
I mean, a repentance never comes. They remain in this unrepentive state. Envy, this is, it's actually two words. We get the word or, ortho, mean glasses or eyes, excuse me, eyes. Um, and then the word for evil. And so it really can be translated, we, we, I, I translate it this way, evil eye. And eyes that are full of jealousy and hatred. Man. I wish I didn't have this in my heart. But it's there at times, isn't it? If it were not for the grace of God, there go I. But even with the grace of God, there go I. Just a few more slander real quick. It's the same form of word from blasphema. It means abusive speech with an intent to harm. It takes, it's gossip on steroids. Oh, well, you know, oh, did you see what she's wearing? Or do you see what that guy had? No, this is, let's get him. It's slander. Pride, superiority, I'm above everybody else. Oh, I'm not like this. I don't know why Scott's preaching this sermon. I don't need any of this. Uh, (laughs) Superiority, arrogance, self-promotion, foolishness. This is an interesting one. It's moral senselessness. Moral senselessness. This is what the Proverbs write about. If you want to do a good study, just go down and list all the verses on the fool and the wise person. It's foolish. And it unites with what Jesus is doing. He's uniting all the previous attitudes into this one. In the case the disciples missed the point or got lost in the individual struggles, as maybe you and I have this morning as we look through this, Jesus says, all of these things proceed from within, and then he uses the last and the fifth of the defiles and defile the man. One could scrub himself, scrub his skin off of himself and be as wicked as can be. You don't purify yourself from the outside. And sinners desperately need a new nature. We needed a new heart And that's what Jesus' atonement is about. God makes us a new creation. He takes out our sinful heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh so we can love and we can worship him and we can start to obey him and we can repent over things that, that have us and hold us and take us away from what God wants us to do. And then, think about this, he says, not only am I going to give you a new heart, I'm going to put my spirit within you, and he will convict you of sin, and he will guide you into righteousness, and he will lead you to my word. That's what he'll do, so don't quench him. Don't quench him. Let him have freedom. Let him have freedom. And all this is done not by your works of righteousness, but by the mercy through Jesus Christ poured out onto you, Titus 3.5. And he declares us righteous by his grace, and he makes us heirs according to the hope of eternal life, and we become new creatures. And you say, well, why do I still struggle with these, Scott? Why is this still here? I think you have to ask the question, if, you, if you've been in a lifetime battle with some of these things and you can't find victory, you have to ask the question, God, do I belong to you? Have I have some moral facade on the outside of me that makes me lie to myself and I've never repented and I've never come to you. Lord, will you break my heart? You have to ask that question. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 is this, Therefore, if anyone, I love that, if anyone is in, is in Christ... That's saved. He is a what? New creature. I ask people all the time, what's new about you? If the power of God can come down through the 
atoning, perfect work of the Lord Jesus Christ take wretches like you and I and take us from eternal death to eternal life, shouldn't there be something new about us? <laughs> That's an absolutely wholesale change of direction. Headed for hell, headed for heaven. There's got to be something in me that God has done that I can say, that's new, Lord. I love you now. I didn't love you before in this area. I'll, I'll, I'll wait for you. I'll, I'll do whatever you ask. I will not engage in sin. Lord, help me to stay away from those things because I belong to you now. Final, final quote. Just I want you to hear this. I read this from Joseph Pack. Actually, a good friend said this to me. In summary, self-deception often leads to false assurance of salvation. And religion can serve as an effective and dangerous mask for unbelief. In fact, religion is unsurpassed as the means of self-deception. Pseudo-religiosity is the context of the form of true religion is especially hideous because it effectively insulates the pseudo-believer from the very word that could provide salvation and solution to their predicament. Pseudo-religious behavior insulates you. And no repentance comes. And if you're like me, you hear this sermon and you read this text and you, like Paul, say, oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Romans chapter 7, verse 24 and 25. But I thank God through Jesus Christ. That's his answer. And he does deliver us. And friend, brother, sister, if you're struggling with these things, Beg him, plead with him, read his word, believe him over the lies that you hear. Be men and women of God's truth. He can change our hearts and he can help us resemble himself if we'll submit and repent. Father, thank you for this word. This is hard on us, Lord. We're, we're saved sinners, many in this room, Lord. We still battle with things, Lord, at times. And Jesus, you kind of just pulled back the curtain on our hearts right here. It's not easy to read this and to take an account of our own lives and say, oh Lord, those things are in me. Mm. Would you help me? And so Lord, I pray that if we are new creatures, if we're in Christ, Lord, Help us have new lives, Lord. Help us to get rid of old things. The old have passed away. Help us, Lord, by your grace, not by outward, external behavior, but by a change of heart, Lord, bending our knee to your word, repenting of sin and changing and turning directions from that, Lord. Being men and women who are devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. Help us, Lord. Help us. We, we need your spirit. We need your word. We need your truth. Thank you, Lord. First our hearts, in Jesus' name. Amen.